6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Jude, verses 7 and 8. And he spoke unto him yet again and said, Suppose there shall be forty found there. And he said, I will do it for forty's sake. And he said to him, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose there be thirty be found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, now I have taken upon to speak unto the Lord. Suppose there shall be twenty found there. And he said, I will not destroy it. He's just haggling. This is... First class, this is world class camel trading going on here. <laughs> now, if you're more Jewish, you can say this is the Arab, and, and you can do, play it the other way if you like. But, but um, I've spent that much time in the Middle East, I've spent more time in Manhattan, and I like the model I'm using. Um, this is Seventh Avenue, gang. Uh, verse 32. And he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak yet, but this once, suppose ten shall be found there. Notice what God says. And he said, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. And the Lord went his way, and as soon as he had ceased talking with Abraham, Abraham returned unto his place. He didn't carry it any further, did he? 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. He backed off. What we're going to discover in chapter 19 is there was one there. And we're going to see what the angels had to do before the judgment could come. Now, why am I making a big thing of this? Because I think we need to understand God's ways, because His ways are not our ways, and the way we find His ways is in the Word. And none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, points to Lot in chapter 17 of Luke, we're going to look at that later, and makes a prophetic analogy. We are instructed to look at this situation in terms of the coming judgment on the earth. It's one of the several reasons that I personally believe that the rapture of the church will precede the wrath of God on the earth. Not all kinds of problems, don't misunderstand me, but I think to the extent that the great tribulation period is pouring out wrath, I believe the church won't be here. And I'm saying that because of 1 Thessalonians 5, and passages like this, because there's a principle that God lays down here, and I believe that God works by his principles, and a principle here that Jesus Christ pointed to. That's the reason I'm spending, I'm using this for seventh verse of Jew as an excuse to get into Sodom and Gomorrah and try to extract from it lessons that are relevant to you and I. Now, chapter 19 is transcribed directly from some of your late, late night cable shows. In fact, if you dramatize this on cable, you might shock that audience. You won't find anything more grisly. Now that I've got your undivided attention, look at chapter 19, verse 1. There came two angels to Sodom in the evening, and, so and Lot sat in the gate at Sodom. Now that's not just a physical location, it's an office. If you sat at the gate, you're one of the city's elders. That's the way they did things. The gate was sort of 
physically designed as a place that the council met and, and acquitted themselves of the duties of the day, judging things and witnessing documents and, and passing rules and such. So this is like a county board of supervisors or something. It's at the gate of, Sod of Sodom and Lot seeing, and you, you wait, what is Lot doing there? Boy, life would be simpler if he'd learned his lesson back in chapter 13. We're going to look at Lot's state of mind, seen through the eyes of Peter in a moment, but so we don't lose our momentum. Let's keep staying right here. Lot rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. He said, Behold, now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night, and wash your feet, and you shall rise up early and go your ways. And he said, Nay, but we shall abide in the street all night. This is analogous to you going to Manhattan, checking into a hotel, and telling the doorman you're going to take a walk through Central Park at 10 or 11 o'clock at night. I was in Detroit on a merger and acquisition with two partners, and we had to go from our hotel to a restaurant that was three blocks away, and the doorman insisted we take a cab, and he was doing us a favor. He wouldn't let us walk. Metropolitan centers, and this just happened to be a very bad time at Detroit, so I'm sure that's not necessarily typical, but most major cities have areas that they won't let an out-of-towner go into for fear of his life. It's interesting. We'd look at Lot here. We're going to read some stuff that sounds pretty grisly. It's not grisly. It measured against the yardstick of our own, quote, civilization, close quote. I've had four years of hand-to-hand -hand training as a train killer, and I would not, I've been accosted in, in middle day in New York where I thought I was going to have to use it all. I was in better shape in those days, fortunately. Um, metropolitan areas, um, especially at night, but sometimes in broad daylight, are at risk. And Sodom was no different. So these two visitors, which Lot apparently recognizes as important guys, because in his own way you see him go to some bizarre lengths to show them deference here, they're going to they, they, go tarry in the street all night. And he pressed them greatly, and they turned into, unto him, and he entered into his house, and he made them a feast and did bake unleavened bread. Interesting, unleavened bread again. And they did eat. But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round, both old and young. That's bizarre. These aren't just the, the young toughs. The old men, too. All the people from every quarter. And they called upon Lot and said unto them, Where are the men who came into thee this night? Bring them out unto us, that we may know them. Now, that's... The population is broadly homosexual. We don't see any hint of euphemisms in the King James of calling them gays or some other polite term. These guys are perverts. And they are they have visitors in town and they want to take advantage of them. And they're upset with Lot for not accommodating them. It gets worse, guys. Lot went out to the door unto them, but shut the door after him and said, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. Now, whatever else is true, Lot recognizes that this ain't good stuff. But Lot offers a proposal that blows us away as a compromise in Lot's mind. Verse 8, Behold, now I have two daughters who have not known man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you, and do to them as it is good in your eyes. Only unto these men do nothing. For therefore they came under the shadow of my roof. Whew. What a bizarre proposal. It's hard for you and I to somehow imagine Lot offering that. 
There is another principle implied here that's interesting. If you are in an Arab country and you are the guest of the host, you need fear nothing from the host. I've been uh, um, the guest of the Algerian government under very strange circumstances, but I could take great comfort that as long as I was a guest of the Algerian government, despite other factors that were involved, I had nothing to fear. There is a deep tradition that if you're under their roof, no matter who you are, what the circumstances, you're safe from the host. And that you even see that come through in lots sets of values here. These men are under my roof. I have to do to, the, to whatever I can to protect them. This is a rather absurd proposal, but don't lose sight of where at least lots coming from in that sense, but we'll move on. And they said, stand back. And they said again, this one fellow came into sojourn. He will needs be a judge. Now we will deal worse with thee than with them. See, in other words, they're speaking to Lot, who is sort of one of them, but really isn't. And now that he's obstructing them, they're threatening him too. It's a lynch mob kind of mood going on here. And they pressed hard against the man, even Lot, and came near to break the door. But the men, that is the angels inside, put forth their hand, pulled Lot into the house of them, and shut the door. And they smote the men that were at the door in the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. So the angels indulged in a supernatural capability and blinded this mob that was there. And the man said unto Lot, Hast thou here any besides, son-in-law and thy sons and thy daughters, and whatsoever thou hast in the city, bring them out of this place? For we will destroy this place, because the cry of them has become great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord hath sent us to destroy it. What is the mission of these two guys to wipe out the city? I want you to recognize as we go here, there's something that has to be a prerequisite condition before they can execute the mission they were sent for. We'll see that shortly. And Lot went out and spoke unto his sons-in-law who married his daughters. These, these, these daughters that he's offering were married, or betrothed at least. I won't get into those technicalities. And said, Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. They didn't take him seriously. And when morning came, the angels hastened Lot, and saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters, which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. Interesting that the threat isn't from them, it's from the city. Their threat is preconditioned upon their leaving. We'll see that in a minute. While he lingered, the men laid a hold upon his hand, and upon the hand of his wife, and upon the hand of his two daughters, and the Lord being merciful in him, and they brought him forth and set him outside the city. The angels physically took them by the hand to drag them out of there. There wasn't sort of coaxing, and they finally gave in. They took them by the hand and got them outside the city limits. And it came to pass, verse 17, that when they had brought them forth abroad, that he said, Escape for thy life, look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plain. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. And Lot said to them, Oh, not so, my lord. Hard to, hard to visualize this. You know, it's, it's, um, we read these stories and, and, and they seem so hard for us to picture. We in our life can picture this kind of degradation because all you have to do is visit a big city. But Lot, you think he's a slow learner. Behold now, verse 19, thy servant hath found grace in thy sight, and thou hast magnified thy mercy, which thou hast shown me in saving my life. I cannot escape to the mountain, lest some evil for, for, overtake me and I die. You've got to be kidding. 
Behold, now this city is nearer to flee unto, and it is a little one. He's talking about Zor. Oh, let me escape there. Is it not just a little one? And let my and my soul shall live. You know, there's a, of, of the five cities, not Sodom and Gomorrah, but one of the five, Zor, is smaller than the others. And Lot proposes, you, you know, you and I, I think, I think we would be grateful just to be escape this, whatever's coming. Lot's looking for a compromise. Verse 21, he said to me, See, I have accepted the, concerning this thing also, and I will not overthrow the city, for thou hast spoken. The, the angel concedes. He said, the angel says, See, I have accepted thee concerning this thing also, that I will not overthrow this city for which thou hast spoken. But notice the angel goes on. Haste thee, escape there. Notice this phrase, and I've underlined it in my Bible. I cannot do anything till, and I always, I always like to circle the tills in the Scripture, the very meaningful connectives, till thou come there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar, which means little. It has another name. It's also in Scripture, but this is, we'll know it as Zoar. The angel tells us something here. The angel's hands are tied until Lot is out of there. Even to the extent that of the five cities, the angel concedes, okay, Lot, you can go to Zoar, and they don't destroy Zoar. We have found the ruins of Zoar. That's what Kyle's work is basically mostly built upon. It was spared, the, the total conflagration. The sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zor. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire, from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities uh, and that which uh, grew upon the ground. Now, Lot's wife had emotional roots in Sodom. She apparently lingered. You often see in the little children's textbook that she looked over her shoulder and turned into a pillar of salt. What's probably more guessing, I'm guessing, more likely is that she lingered. She straggled. She lingered back, couldn't let go. And she gets hit with a brimstone and becomes a pillar of salt, as it's described here. That'd have to be sodium chloride to be a salt, by the way. But the point is that that's, uh, anyway, Lot's wife turns into a pillar of salt. Now, there's all kinds of ideas what this may really mean. Well, let me make it simple for you and I. I think that's exactly what happened. That's what the Torah says. That's what the Septuagint says. And that's what Jesus Christ quotes in Luke 17. He says, remember Lot's wife. So I don't believe that we, they or we, are any misconceptions about what happened to Lot's wife. She turned into a pillar of salt. Not necessarily a miraculous change. She may have just been clobbered with the brimstone that was aimed at those cities. It doesn't take anything but being too close to ground zero to cause that to happen. If she had been with the, the entourage at a safe distance in Zohar, fine, but she was straggling. Maybe, to, I, I'm guessing, go back for some particular artifact or somehow not letting go, not putting it behind her. So we do not have to do. We have to put the life of the flesh behind us. You can't straggle. We have an award in our company. It's a the Minuteman. It's a trophy thing, but hidden in the thing, we've got Luke 962. I don't know if you know the Concord Minuteman, the famous statue that has the, you ever, you know, with a musket, he has his hand on something. You always see it. It's, got, it's the plow. The Minuteman kind of idea. And he has his hand on the plow. So I had the artist who, Don Winton, who did this for us as a trophy. 
hide behind the thing, Luke 9, 60, no, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom. So it's a little secret thing in that thing. But no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom. And so uh, that's part of what Lot's wife is all about. Okay, so Simon Gomorrah. My premise here is that God honors even one righteous. You say, Chuck, you've got to be kidding. You're going to call Lot righteous? This guy that was trying to compromise with his lynch mob outside, you're going to call that proposal born of the Spirit? No. But I am intrigued that Lot is recorded in the Scripture as a righteous man. It isn't Chuck Missler's off-the-wall screwball idea. There's plenty of those around too, but I'm talking about, let's take a look at 2 Peter chapter 2. Let's look at what the Holy Spirit tells us through Peter. We looked at 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4 last time. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, or Tartarus actually, and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be served unto judgment. He continues then, verse 5. And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, the preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Okay, that's Genesis 6 and 7, the flood. We all know about that. But then verse 6, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly. All right? That's the same thing that Judah is pointing to as a milestone here. But I want to call your attention to the next two verses because they give us the Holy Spirit's report card on Lot. And it's a surprise. And delivered just Lot. The word just there means justified, righteous. Just Lot. I want you to notice an insight into Lot's emotional state. Vexed with the filthy manner of life of the wicked. When Lot dwelt in Sodom, he wasn't happy. He was in total conflict because the values of that city were at conflict with his own personal values. He wasn't, didn't have a strength of character to flee there, separate himself. Bad news. But he also was uncomfortable there. He was vexed with the filthy manner of life of the wicked. For that righteous man, Peter says, dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. So Lot had no pleasure. He was not at peace. He was not in the Lord's rest. Was he saved? At least twice. <laughs> Abraham's 318 troops saved him once in the physical sense. Abraham's intercessory prayer may have had something to do with the second time. Genesis 18, the whole haggle that I kid about with, uh, with uh, uh, Abraham and, and the Lord was an intercessory prayer, probably the first intercessory prayer in the Torah. I don't think it was because of that prayer that Lot was saved, because I think the mission, the angels apparently had that mandate in root, but uh, I, I won't put things in order in that regard, because he knows what we're going to pray before we pray it, so you can, you can, you can chase that one down. But um, but notice what else comes right after this. What This occasion of Lot gives rise to Peter's ninth verse here, 2 Peter 2.9. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. And he goes on to make his points. 
interesting that Lot, with all this adverse comment on his walk, is regarded in the New Testament as one who is saved. And indeed he was, literally in terms of being removed from Sodom and Gomorrah, for our learning. I personally believe that uh, Lot was saved the same way you and I are, by the grace of God and his mercy. Now, for those of us that have an imperfect walk, and I think that includes more than 51% of us here tonight, it certainly includes 100% of the people on this side of the platform, meet. For those of you that have an imperfect walk like I have, I take enormous comfort from Lot. I look at Paul and others and get a little humbled. I look at Lot and I figure, well, maybe that's a benchmark I at least can beat a little bit, okay? Um, but there's great comfort because we're justified and we're saved not by our righteousness, by, by his mercy and grace. And that's what Lot's all about. And it's interesting to me because this is a spiritual issue here. God is seeking to save even one. This is not just limited to Genesis 19. Let's turn to Ezekiel 22. Ezekiel is prophesying the last two words, verses of chapter 22, 30 and 31. Ezekiel says as follows, or speaking for the Lord. He says, I sought for a man among them that they should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. I sought for a man, singular, couldn't find any. Verse 31, therefore have I poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their own way have I, rec uh, have I uh, recompensed upon their heads, saith the Lord. Okay, and I won't get into the context of Ezekiel's point with Israel and all that. That's the point of the principle, though, is interesting, is that God is looking for one and good and fine. And so, kavum, right? That's Ezekiel. Let's take a look at Jeremiah. That's a review thing. We've just been in Jeremiah recently. Let's kick over to Jeremiah about uh, 5. Chapter 5, verse 1, Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem and see now, and know, and seek in its broad places if ye can find a man, singular, if there be any that executeth justice and seeketh the truth, and I will pardon her. Interesting. Lord doesn't seem to require much, does he? When you read in the scripture, you find that his posture with Sodom and Gomorrah is not unique. That's his way. If there's one righteous, he will spare the city for the sake of that righteous. That's why when I hear in the book of Revelation, that's why when Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, I appointed you not unto wrath, but unto salvation. I believe the church will not see, but from a distance, the wrath of God. I believe the church will be extracted from the world scene. In the book of Revelation, we have idioms that are used very precisely for various groups of people. And the main scenario in the book of Revelation has to do with a people called the earth dwellers. They that dwell upon the earth. Again, they that dwell upon the earth. The earth dwellers. You and I are not earth dwellers. And uh, the earth dwellers are blasphemy, right? And what is the sin in Israel for blasphemy? Stoning. What happens in the book of Revelation? Stones. A couple hundred pounds each. That's a hailstorm. Um, but it's interesting how the idiom is consistent with what God has premised in the Torah. Stoning is the punishment for blasphemy, and that's what the earth gets. Now, okay, that's the one scene. On the other hand, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 so we understand another principle. You know, this is all review. I'm sure this is familiar to you, but I think it helps build a perspective here. And it's what you're building on. What was Lot building on? 
Nothing too firm here. There's only one foundation, verse 11, that no man, which, uh, for other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's the only foundation you can build on. Anything else is a waste. And, and he goes on to describe this in verse 12. 1 Corinthians 3, 12, Paul says, Now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. What's not obvious in the structure, there's two groups of things. Those that are combustible, those that are not combustible. It's a little confusing to some of us because you don't think of gold, silver, and precious stones as being a desirable, that sounds materialistic. Paul's point is, is that they're non-combustible in contrast to the wood, hay, stubble, which is combustible. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall test every man's work of what sort it is. Right? Half is going to burn, half doesn't. That's, the, that's sort of the rhetorical idiom that Paul is using. If any man's work abide which he is built on, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. So depending on what you're building on, it's going to be tested by the living God. And if it stands, you'll get a reward. If not, your works, the result, your fruits will be lost. It's got nothing to do with your status. Because look at the way that verse 15 finishes. But he himself shall be saved, yet as by fire. The analogy is you made it, uh, you made it as a refugee. You're in heaven with just the... I was going to say the clothes are in your back, but that ain't any good either because there's filthy rags. You've got to be reclothed with his righteousness. So I can't play that model too far. But you, you don't have anything else. And you've heard me talk about Luke 16 and things. You can't take it with you, but you can. The way you take it with you is to send it up ahead. Your works on this earth that are based upon leading of the Spirit for Jesus Christ will offer a reward, and that will be sent up ahead. If you're going to travel to a foreign country, you change your currency at a favorable rate. And you do that here by using your opportunity, your talents, whatever the Lord puts, whatever resources the Lord puts in your way for his kingdom. And that will generate a reward you can't possibly lose. Anything else is but uh, dross. That's what this really says. And again, Lot's in a good example. Because he left Gomorrah. He was saved from Sodom. He was in a cave, whatever. He, there's a aftermath here that I haven't got into yet. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jude. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.